We want to continue this week in our exposition of Romans chapter 12. So take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. When we started our study of Romans, I, I warned you that working our way through Romans, and we've been going now for a little over a year, would be kind of like driving through downtown Seattle. So you would kind of go, and you'd move, and then er, you'd have to stop, and you'd sit there for a little bit, and then you'd gain some distance, cover you know, half a chapter, and then you have to stop. And then it might take you two or three weeks to get through three verses. That's kind of the way we've been going through Romans. Romans chapters, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is one of those places where we, we're stopped. Stoplight, we are taking our time here in these couple of verses. In terms of Paul's flow of thought, he is starting a new section of the letter. And these words form the beginning point for a series of exhortations that follow. But they also reveal the fundamental and crucial mindset for every Christian. If the gospel is the power of God for salvation, then here Paul is revealing the fundamental first step in living out the power of the gospel. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Lord, once again, we ask for your blessing. Your word is truth, and we long to understand it and to store it in our hearts and to live accordingly. Amen. Paul says here that because of God's work in your life, his mercies, his purposes being fulfilled in your life, not just justifying you, but how your justification is part of God's great plan. Your life is completely God's. And last time I noted that there are three facets or three descriptions of a life completely God's. First of all, a life completely God's is a life saved. A life completely God's is a saved life. Paul uses the word mercies to capture all that God has done in our lives, justifying us, delivering us from his wrath, redeeming and reconciling us, uniting us to Christ so that we have been buried with Christ, we have been raised with Christ to new life. That frees us from the power of sin and the law the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us gives us new life. He has adopted us. He has elected us and secured us in his love. These are God's mercies that have saved you and have claimed your life for God. It is these mercies then that compel us to respond to God who has saved us. And so, secondly, 
A life completely God's is a life offered. A life that is completely God's is an offered life. And Paul uses the rich imagery of sacrifice to compel us to present our bodies as sacrifices. Each of us is to offer his whole self or her whole self to God as a living, holy, pleasing sacrifice. And this kind of offering is done without any reservations, without any caveats or exception clauses. Paul says this offering is reasonable worship. It is worship that is complete. It is worship that is deliberate and decisive. Today we want to pick up here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where we see that a life completely God's is a life transformed. A life that is completely God's is a transformed life. This is the main thought of verse 2. Be transformed. Be transformed. So, in view of God's mercies, Paul compels us to, one, present our bodies as a sacrifice, and two, to be transformed. Now, the word transformed is the word metamorpho. We get the word metamorphosis from this. We use this word to describe all kinds of transitions or transformations. Usually, we think of a a caterpillar in a cocoon that is transformed into a butterfly. It's a good analogy, good illustration of this word. It is a passive command. Now, active commands are pretty straightforward. In fact, in verse 1, the command, present your bodies, is an active command. A passive command is a command, really, that tells us to cooperate with or to participate in something that God is doing. We see these kinds of commands in other places in the Bible too. One of the best known ones is found in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That is a passive command. It is God who is transforming you. The command to be transformed means for you and for me to cooperate with God's work of transformation instead of resisting it, instead of undermining it by letting sin reign in our mortal bodies to make us obey its passions. That's Romans 6 verse 12. So this is another way of saying that. Be transformed, participate in, cooperate with, submit your life to God's transformation of your life, of your person. The Christian life is a life of transformation, understand that. It is a life of spiritual growth, change. This change is the measure of spiritual maturity. When we talk about maturing spiritually, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about this work of transformation. And a lack of transformed living may indicate that a person isn't truly a Christian. If there's no change, if there's no transformation going on, then a person can't be a believer. 
I say it may indicate that because sometimes growth is slow, and we need to recognize that about ourselves and about other folks. Sometimes spiritual growth is slow. If we were to chart the pattern of someone's life, you might see something like this. There's the profession of faith, the conversion to Christ, and there's immediate growth. They they love the Word, they they love the people of God, they're growing spiritually, all of a sudden they stumble. They fall back into those hard habits of sin, sin that's hard to shake. But they repent. They realize, as a Christian, as someone who loves God and has been saved, I can't live this way, and I hate it, and they're miserable with it. So they, they turn, they confess sin, and they start to grow again, and they love God, and they're, they're coming to realize just how deeply sin is ingrained in all of us and in themselves. And so they struggle through different things, and then they stumble, and they fall. And they realize, oh, that's a temptation I was never aware of. But then they come to the Word, and they repent, and they grow, and they understand truth. They begin to discern error from truth, false teaching, and they grow spiritually. And this goes on as a pattern. And so there are plenty of stumbles, there are plenty of falls, there's plenty of struggle. But if you look at the point of beginning and the point where they are sometime later, there is an overall pattern of growth. There's change. This is what we're talking about in transformation. On the other hand, you may see something like this. Someone claims to become a Christian. They make a profession of faith. They're converted to Christ. And so they come out of the gate, and they're excited about Christ and the people of God and learning the Bible, and all of a sudden, they realize that these struggles with sin are harder than they thought they were going to be, and they stumble and they fall into that. They realize that someone comes alongside them and says, hey, you, you can't do that anymore. You belong to Christ. That's right. I belong to Christ. They begin to grow. But then they quickly stumble into sin again. You can see there are some similarities here. We don't always know what kind of soil that was, but they do that. They stumble into sin and someone comes alongside of them, they read in their Bible, they hear a message, they go, ah, that's right, I can't do that. And they, oh, but now it's this really hard work. And those patterns of sin are so hard to fight. And now they go back down into sin and suddenly they disappear. They don't respond to someone who calls them and says, hey, where have you been lately? I haven't seen you in church or community group. They avoid that. Oh, but then they come back, and life's a wreck now, and they're, they've, they've blown it in a relationship or whatever it is, and so now they come back, and they're reading their Bible again, and they really want to make things right in the pattern. And again, what we see is, yes, yeah, some spiritual interest. Yes, we see some what we think is life, and we respond to somebody that way. We don't respond suspiciously, but we come alongside. But if you take the origin point and you take where they are sometime later, What you see is not growth, not spiritual appetite, not transformation, not change. This person is in danger of not finishing the race. This is somebody who urgently needs to evaluate whether their faith is real or not. Because there is such a thing as false faith. If you hear me describe that and you say, I'm sure that may be me. 
If I really looked at my life and its patterns, that's me. The origin point, but where I am now is not a life of transformation over time. You would be someone who needs to think seriously about the warning that you need to finish the race. That if there is no change, there is no Jesus. Even if it's a struggle, even if we stumble, even if there's always this process of confessing sin and repentance, if the pattern is one of continuing sin, and though the conscience may be struck, it really isn't misery, there is reason to question. Examine yourselves, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, examine yourselves as to whether or not you are in the faith. But a believer whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, that believer will undergo transformation. Paul even says in verse 29 of chapter 8 that he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son, That means transformation. It would even be right to say that transformation is what God is doing between justification and glorification, which hasn't happened yet. You already stand justified. You already stand in a right relationship with God through faith. One day, God will complete that. There is glory. That's what chapters 5 through 8 are all about in Romans. But in between that time, God is transforming you. He's renovating your life. Let me point you to some other scriptures in the New Testament that speak to this transforming work of God in your life and the need for us to participate in that work. 1 Peter 2, verse 2 would be one. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You need to grow up into salvation. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace is not static. We are to grow in God's grace. God has supplied us with the means of changing, of growing, of spiritual victory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul is talking about the new covenant, the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What a beautiful verse. And this word transformed is the same word that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 12. It's only used two other times in the New Testament. And in those two other instances are found in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark to describe the transfiguration. And there it's translated transfigured. Jesus was transfigured. When his humanity was kind of peeled back, his glory was revealed. He was transformed or transfigured before the disciples. We with unveiled face, meaning not, there's no barrier of the law, the old covenant, all of its systems. 
because we are actually converted. We are actually uh, saved, being transformed then by beholding the glory of the Lord. One of the most extensive exhortations to spiritual pursuit of spiritual growth is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Catch that. His divine power has granted to us all things. There's a sufficiency to God's grace, his granting of all things that pertain to life and godliness. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has given you these great and wonderful promises. You can partake of his divine nature, meaning you can become like him. Not a God, but become God-like, godliness. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. There is always a process of adding, supplementing, pursuing faith, virtue, knowledge, all of these things. One of the clearest presentations of our participating in what God is doing, we find in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There you go. This working out your salvation is the cooperation That's the participation. God's work in you to will and to work is his transforming power enacted in your life. Be transformed. A life that is completely God's is a transformed life. Paul bolsters this command then to be transformed to strengthen our pursuit of transformation. First, we see a threat to transformation. We see the threat to transformation. And the threat to this transforming work that God is doing is this age, this age. Now, the ESV has this world. Do not be conformed to this world. But the word is age or era. We actually get the word eon from this word. So it designates an epoch of time. We might say, uh, that, take, that took place in the Bronze Age. Or we developed that or discovered that in the Iron Age. 
In the New Testament, this age, or sometimes this present age, defines the period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, his return. But it also describes a moral realm. That's why sometimes in some translations it's translated world. It has to do with a realm. It refers to the dominant moral state of this epoch or period of time. Some examples, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. For we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So we can see there that there are various ages, there are epochs of time that are unfolding in God's purposes and plans throughout history. This age has a moral designation to it. It is one that is dominated by not real wisdom and the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul is even more pointed in Galatians chapter 1 Verses 3 and 4, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which then begins the age to come, the next age. So you can see this present age, or this age, is an epoch of time that is a realm dominated by rebellion and evil. Paul says in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this age. In other words, don't be molded. Don't be shaped by how it thinks. Don't be shaped by its perspectives, its priorities, its desires. Don't buy into and be conformed or molded by its definitions of right and wrong, its behaviors. The threat to being transformed is an ever-constant pressure that this age is actively applying to you to enslave you. That's the implication. It is ongoing. It doesn't take a break. Listen, this age is not neutral. It's not neutral. It is a realm... It is an epoch of time that is opposed to God, and it is opposed and working against God's transforming work in you. Also, this is the only alternative to being transformed. You are either being conformed 
to this age are you are being transformed. There's no third option. There's no third alternative. There's no middle ground. Now, this age may use and does use different methods in different cultures at different times to conform you. In one place in the world, it might use spiritism and occult, occultic practice, to conform you. In another place, like our current culture, it might use materialism and secularism to conform you. But regardless of whatever the scheme is, whatever the lie is, this age is looking to actively mold you how you think, how you evaluate, how you live. So this is the threat then to transformation. It is being conformed, is being conformed to this age. Second, though, Paul supplies the way of transformation. You are transformed how? By the renewing of your mind, the renewal of your mind. Your mind is the center of who you are. Don't think just brain, but your mind, your person. It's where you reason things out and make decisions and chart life and respond to things that happen to you in life. It's where you comprehend. It's where you set your will. Paul talks about the mind in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. In fact, in a way, he's coming full circle back to Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, 28, he reveals God's judgment on humanity's willful suppression of the truth. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, then the result of this debased mind follows in verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and so forth. That's what the mind does. It is a, it is a moral key, the moral key to who you are. To have your mind renewed is for this condition then to be reversed. That's what Paul is getting at. Romans chapter 1, the entire world, all of humanity, has a debased mind, has a mind that can't know God, love God, refuses to receive God, to glorify God. The debased mind cannot assess the truth about God. It is only capable of rejecting it, The renewed mind is capable of receiving truth and therefore thinks the way God wants you to think. The spirit of life who now lives within you renews your mind to recognize truth and assess all of life differently. So when we talk about renewing your mind, we're talking about the transformation of your worldview, how you see life, how you evaluate all of life, how you assess truth and error, how you determine right from wrong. 
how you view relationships, what is most important in life according to eternity, that is, the age to come, which is the realm that you now belong to. It is this evaluating or this assessing that Paul emphasizes next. So this is the way, though, that we are transformed. It's the renewing of our mind. The Holy Spirit is renewing our mind as he takes his word and brings it to bear upon our understanding. This age threatens transformation, but the way of transformation is the renewing of our minds and, thirdly, Paul supplies the goal of transformation. The goal of transformation is discerning the will of God. Discerning the will of God. So transformation takes place by the renewing of your mind, and it is your renewed mind that is now able to, by testing, look at verse 2, by testing, discern what is the will of God. Only a renewed mind can do this. The words in your Bible, by testing, may discern, are actually all one word that means something like to examine and test something to approve or reject it. It is the word dakimazo. And I don't tell you that word to like wow you. I tell you that because it's an important word that Paul uses several times. When we talk about the will of God, we are usually thinking of a decision God wants us to make, aren't we? That's how we use it. What's the will of God? Lord, what's your will in this situation? We are confronted with two or maybe more choices to decide between, and we want to know which option God would like us to choose. So when we think of discerning the will of God, we usually mean discovering something that God has, has kept secret or is hiding from us, but wants us to seek out, should I pursue this new job opportunity? Should we buy this house? Should I choose school X or school Y? Those are major life decisions that we all face at times amid thousands of other ones. And there's nothing wrong with seeking insight and wisdom when we're confronted with decisions in life, and we all are. We want to obey God. We, we know that God has purposes for our lives, that he's uh, intimately involved in, in all of the details of our lives. We want to do things that are right. Not every decision is a moral decision. Sometimes decisions that aren't moral decisions at least don't look like moral decisions, but they have moral implications. There's nothing wrong with seeking insider wisdom. But how we usually think of knowing God's will is kind of, is kind of in a two-dimensional way of thinking about God's will. Here Paul is talking about recognizing and approving, you might say accepting or even treasuring God's purposes and designs for how you live now that you are completely His. Romans 1, back to Romans 1, Romans 1 shines some light on this. Because if we go back to Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, we find that Paul uses this word, dakimazo, 
just like he does the word mind. Verse 28 of Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Those words, see fit, is the same word. They did not approve. They did not discern to acknowledge God. So God gave them up to a debased mind. That word debased is the same word with a negative in front of it. In other words, they did not dokimazo, they did not approve, test and discern, weigh out God's glory and see it as something worth treasuring. They did not, they did not value or treasure knowing God. Even though God, Romans 1, had made all of his power and his glory evident to them. God gave them up to an unqualified, a debased, a mind then that has no capacity then to treasure or value God's glory. That's what Paul's saying. It's the same word. He gave them up to a debased, an anti Dokimazo mind, a mind incapable of recognizing truth and glory when it's right in front of them. To do what ought not to be done, verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, and then there's this list of immoral practices. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but Give approval to those who practice them. Same root word. They come alongside others and they're debased or minds that cannot grasp or appreciate and evaluate God's glory and truth rightly, then approve, test, and discern unto approving alongside everybody else all of their practice of evil. This is the rebellion of mankind. But you can see three times in these verses, in Romans chapter 1, Paul uses this word. Now he comes to Romans chapter 12, and he says, you be transformed. Your mind is being renewed. That debased mind is no longer debased. God is renewing your mind for the purpose of now seeing and recognizing and treasuring what he has said to be true about himself and his glory and eternity. You do not belong to this age. You belong to him. And he has purpose for how you live in this age. It is not some hidden plan you need to discover but it is his will that is revealed and now able to be understood and treasured by your renewed mind. That's God's will. Now, does this affect our decision-making? Of course. Of course it does. Part of testing, discerning God's will is applying God's will as he has revealed it to the myriad of decisions that we are all confronted with that we all have to make. It's taking all of these different pieces of life and seeing them and evaluating them through the grid of knowing I don't belong to this age. 
I am being transformed. My mind is renewed by truth, and I see the glory, and I treasure the truth that God has revealed and said about me and my heart and its sin and my need to confess sin and somebody else's anger and how they've responded to me and how I need to respond to them in this relationship. All of these things, money, how I'm to invest my money, what job I ought to take or not to take, all of those things now are seen through a renewed mind, do you see? So it is about understanding God's will, but not just in this two-dimensional, I'm, I'm waiting, Lord, for you to write something on my living room wall to tell me to do this or not do it. And God's will, Paul says here in verse 2, is good and acceptable and perfect. It's good. It's wholesome. It's right. It is not harmful. God's will does not lead you into destruction. There may be trial. There may be difficulty. Romans chapter 8, right in the midst of all of this glory and this security of God's love, Paul lays out all of the things that you may face, all of the things that might try to separate us from the love of God, but they cannot. God's will, his purposes, his designs for your life lead you into good, not harm. God's will is acceptable or pleasing. This is the same word that he uses in, in verse 1. Present your bodies a sacrifice, pleasing to God, acceptable to God. So in the same way that our sacrifice, offering our whole selves to God is a pleasing, acceptable sacrifice. And remember, Paul is drawing upon this imagery of the sacrifice and the aroma that's mentioned many times in the Old Testament when it describes how a burnt offering pleases God. Paul is saying that God's will for you is pleasing. It's acceptable. It's something to be received and treasured. God's will is perfect. The word really means complete or finished. It also means like without flaw. It isn't a hypocritical design. There isn't some crack in it, a lack of integrity in God's, what God says he is doing in your life and what he's really up to. God's will is perfect. It's whole, complete. This word is often used in the Bible to designate the end of the age as all of God's purposes come to fulfillment. What Paul really, I think, is getting here with this word that God's will is perfect is that God's will for how you live is making you fit for the end. It is consistent with the glory that he's taking you to. So his will, his designs for your life that you can now see and understand and receive and, and treasure because your mind is being renewed, this will, this plan, these purposes for your life are good and pleasing and perfect. And really what Paul is going to do, he's going to say, if that's true, you, you are compelled by God's mercies, 
you are presenting your life a sacrifice to him, holy, pleasing, and you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you see God's will and how it applies to all of life and eternity, then when you come together as a church, this is how you need to function. This is how you need to operate. That's where he's going to go with verse 3. That's where he's going to start. And you need to love each other. And this is what love looks like. And you need to have this kind of eternal mindset when it comes to your governing authorities. And this is how you treat each other when you disagree over some matters of conscience, chapter 14. You see where he's going. We as a new people who are giving our lives as sacrifices and being transformed by the renewing of our minds have now been granted a new life that has the capacity to live out with one another a new community, the church, the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the richness of your word and and how you build us up by it. Lord, we long to receive it just as you describe here as good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, you have called us to walk in a certain manner of life, to live in a way that is different, that is countercultural to the age in which we live. And all of your people everywhere on the face of this earth are to live transformed lives that counter whatever the age has to dole out wherever they happen to live. In our time and in our culture, it is loving you in the midst of a, of a culture that increasingly rejects you and demands its own right to define its own morality apart from you, as if you do not exist. You call upon us as your people, though, to not be conformed to this age. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to this cooperation, this participation in your transforming, transforming work in our lives. In your name we ask these things. Amen.